Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday night at the Chabura. Uh, just some quick housekeeping. Um, we are finalizing the two books that we are publishing, Please God, the Chabura Press is publishing uh, this year. One of them, Insights into Pesach, written by selected students, selected teachers, as well as some translations of our Western Sephardi and classical Sephardi Hachamim. That should be out, please God, before Pesach. Uh, another book that we are working on, uh, the translation of the Hakdama to Harambam's Perush Hamishnayot by Eli Shaobi. We are very much looking forward to that being completed very, very soon. So do stay in touch, uh, stay updated on the WhatsApp groups as well as on the website. If you're watching on YouTube, please don't forget to subscribe. If you're listening on the podcast, please don't forget to leave a review. Moving on to tonight's guest or today's guest, depending where you are today. Um, Avi Garson, one of the co-founders of the Habra, uh, introduced me to uh, Professor Goldish. And I was very excited for this class tonight because we often hear about the Sephardi world uh, of the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, but we always talk about it in abstract terms. Um, we've only on a few instances been able to dig into some Teshubot or to some writings of that time for us to really get a sense of what these Sephardim experienced, um, what were the challenges, what were the things that were going on in those eras. So tonight, we're very, very lucky to have with us an expert in those matters, Professor Matt Goldish. He holds the Samuel M. and Esther Melton Chair in History at The Ohio State University. His books include Judaism in the Theology of Sir Isaac Newton, The Sabbatean Prophets, and Jewish Questions, Responsa on Sephardic Life in the Early Modern Period. He has also edited or co-edited books on spirit possession in Judaism, Jewish dissenters, Jewish messianism, and Jewish education. He is the writer and executive producer of the film, The Other Men in Black, The Hasidic Movement Yesterday and Today which is available on meltoncenter.osu.edu. And tonight we'll be examining certain teshubot written by Hachamim, such as Hacham Yoshua ben Eviste, Hacham Yaakov ibn Zur, and Hacham Chaim Palachi, in order for us to get a sense of everyday life and issues that were facing our Sephardi communities between the 17th and 19th centuries. Professor Goldish, thank you so much for being here. We're honored to have you, and b'chavod. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really honored to be here and uh, thrilled to have this opportunity. I didn't know about the Chabura. Uh, I guess um, you didn't know about me. <laughs> so uh, glad to be together with you. So uh, the way that I would like to proceed, uh, if this uh, is okay with everybody, is to spend maybe five minutes talking about what exactly Sheilot Chubot are uh, and what some of the issues are in dealing with them. Then spend maybe 15 minutes on each of these uh, three Chubot that we're going to be looking at tonight. Uh, and um, maybe um, we'll take a few questions in between. Uh, I, um, I don't think that I have ever done uh, nine pages of um, primary sources in an hour ever in my life, uh, but uh, I was asked to try and, and move through them so that we can kind of so cover some ground and get some sense of these things, but um, 
th there are bound to be questions. These are complicated uh, stories. So, um, so I'll, I'll pause between e each one uh, and, and, and uh, see if people have questions. And thank you for, for the warm greetings, including the greetings from Brazil. Honored, honored to be there with you. Um, so, she'elotu tshuvot. Halacha, Jewish law, covers everything about our lives. Uh, it tells you what to do from the moment you get up in the morning until the moment you go to sleep at night. It tells you how to comport your, yourself. It tells you about morals and ethics. It tells you about business, how to conduct your business. Uh, it tells you how to conform to Torah law uh, in every way. So it is a, a very encompassing body of law. It's not like uh, religious law, strictly. It's a law that you have to live by uh, for, for traditional Jews who follow it. It's, it's essentially encompassing of all areas of life. And part of what that means is that it has to be dynamic. Uh, you, you can't simply write a book that says, okay, here's the law for every situation because new situations will always come up. And what you need is an expert in Jewish law to tell you how to deal with those problems. Uh, up until uh, the period of uh, Rabbi Sadia Gaon and uh, Rabbi Noharambam, um, you, you just had to go to an expert to ask a question about any new situation. The Rambam in, in, introduced the idea of a law code for Jews, uh, but uh, it was very controversial. The rabbis didn't like giving up that power that everybody had to come to them that the idea that you could go to a book, a code of law, and find most of what you needed in there was uh, a little um, uh, annoying to many of the rabbis. It's one of the many reasons that the Rambam was rather controversial. So there are law codes. There is the, um, the, the three major law codes. Uh, first, really, uh, I suppose, four. You have the Reef, Rabbeinu Alfasi. The Rambam, that's not really a code, it's sort of a compilation. You have the Rambam, the Tur, and the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, those are kind of the codes. And despite having those codes, questions still come up uh, always about how to practice Jewish law uh, that are not covered by the codes. So people would write to the rabbis or in person ask them questions and they would answer them. And uh, sometimes if the question was a novel kind of question or uh, asked something that the rabbi had not encountered before, he would write what amounted to a miniature treatise on the question, on the issue. Uh, and this was really meant not only for him and for the people whose question he was answering, uh, the rabbi saved these letters, these uh, responses, uh, so that students could see how this rabbi had interpreted the codes of Jewish law and the Talmud and the Torah um, to answer the question that was asked. So it was uh, a pedagogical tool uh, more than anything. And um, the rabbis, the great rabbis who were asked a lot of questions would compile a volume of uh, the questions that had been asked to them and their responses uh, for 
I, I'm not big on um, PowerPoint and visual aids and so on, but I'm going to do a very small show and tell here. Um, here is a volume. Uh, this is Sheilot Tshuvot Rabbeinu El Azar Ben Aracha, who is a, an Ottoman rabbi of the 16th century. And you go through, and here are questions that were asked of him, and his responses happen to be fascinating. Here's Halachot uh, Ktanot and Lechem Rab, more Sephardi Sheilot Tshuvot. And here's a more recent, this is a 18th, 19th century um Moroccan uh, uh, volume of Sheilot Tshuvot that was recently, relatively recently published, uh, probably from a manuscript, uh, Torati Kutiel. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff here about Moroccan Jews and the tobacco trade. They were apparently uh, very big in that trade. So these, these books, uh, some, some Chachamim have their specialties. Um, and uh, others will answer any kind of question. And the way that historians use these books is uh, what I would call against the grain. That is to say, they were intended for the purpose of yeshiva students uh, learning from the, the way that the rabbi answered, how to approach a particular legal question and so on. For the historian, first of all, the she'elah, the question that was asked, is often more historically interesting and has more uh, interesting information from a historical point of view than the teshuvah, than the answer that was given. That's not always the case, but it's very often the case. Um, and uh, they are simply a brilliant source uh, of information about the life of communities and especially the lives of ordinary people. Uh, popular culture or the lives of ordinary people uh, is a, um, a difficult uh, topic to get at. How are you going to know what ordinary people who don't write, who don't leave their own records of what they have to say about the world, how are we going to know anything whatsoever about them? Well, when they bring cases uh, before Beitin, or they have questions that they ask to a chacham, or something about their situation comes up in the she'elah, we suddenly have a, uh, a bright light on a moment in their lives. So uh, these she'elot uh, tshuvot, especially the first one we're going to deal with, uh, really uh, are a gold mine for the historian. So we read the question that was asked, and then we read the answer that was given by the Chacham. Again, since I'm more interested in the question, then we're gonna go heavy on the questions. Uh, the answers, the responses sometimes have, sometimes always have long, complicated legal discussions. Uh, and uh, we do not necessarily, uh, while studying history, uh, we don't necessarily need to go through all of those. When you're an advanced rabbinical student, uh, then going through the uh, teshuvah and seeing how the hacham uh, responds to the question and understands the issues can be fascinating, but that's not what we're, what we're after right now. Uh, the one last thing I want to say about these teshuvot, uh, the she'elot teshuvot, the questions and the answers, is that they are always mediated and they are always edited. That is to say, we basically never see them in their raw form. 
We never see the question the way it was originally asked. Uh, names of people are elided. Um, details, even uh, geographical details, often elided. So uh, we have to realize that um, we're seeing a document that often somebody has uh, kind of positioned uh, because the person who wrote it wants a particular outcome or uh, they present the case in a certain way and we don't have all the facts about it or we get a particular version of the presentation. And uh, that's important to know because unfortunately in most cases, unless we go and spend uh, weeks and months in the archives dig digging around and trying to find other details of the cases, all we know about the case is what is in the Sheila. Um, and um, so we have to we have to deal with what we're what we're given. Um, the first uh, question that we're going to deal with, and I think we're going to try and uh, put it on um, up on the screen. Is that correct? Are we gonna okay. Uh, so uh, the the names that are at the tops of these uh, documents are uh, names that I've given them. They're not in the originals. Um, Oh, let me say just one more thing about the editing issue is that uh, the best case scenario for us to see uh, how the questions look is if uh, the collection of the Sheilota Chuvot has been sitting in somebody's attic or something for, you know, the last 100, 200, 300 years uh, and is being published now because editors now know that they shouldn't mess with this material that historians and interested people of all sorts will be using it and that they shouldn't eliminate details or whatever uh, and usually after two or three hundred years the sensitivity of the particular family and so on might have uh, eased up a little bit although sometimes over hundreds of years people are still very sensitive about their family being brought up in some negative way but uh Places like uh, the uh, Yeshiva Ahavat Shalom in Geula uh, in, in Jerusalem publishes a tremendous amount of this material and they are very good. They, they're very careful to publish uh, word for word from the manuscript. So you find just amazing things in the material that they publish. I highly recommend them, anybody who's publishing. But usually we're not that lucky. Usually somebody has... Uh, as they say in Arabic, pachkid with the uh, uh, with the material, uh, they've messed around with it a little. So okay, so let's um, let's take a look at this. So we are going to be dealing with material from three very famous hachamim, Chacham Yehoshua ben Benisti. But the ben Benisti family, I don't need to tell you, is one of the oldest and most respected as Sephardi families, uh, going back uh, a thousand years in Spain. And uh, the uh, Rabbi Yoshua ben Benisti is less famous than his brother, uh, Chacham Chaim ben Benisti, um, but uh, very, very famous rabbinic family. And uh, this, uh, this question is, is typical in that it comes up in a random spot in uh, laws of damages to neighbors. In other words, it's a totally technical, the, 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 the question itself is a technical issue of Jewish law. And yet the way that the She'elah is asked, the way this question is asked, it reads almost like a story from the Arabian Nights. It, it's, 
it, it contains details in a flowing narrative story. Uh, it's not all that common to see something like this, but it is uh, a jewel for a historian. Uh, and we'll point out some of the reasons. So uh, this is laws of damages to neighbors, to the distinguished brothers, the sons of the Yassid, may God protect them from 1641. So this is from the middle of the 17th century. And um, the, the, the Yassid family is a, a famous family itself, well-known merchants and uh, business people. So here is the Sheila, here is the question that was asked to Chacham Ben Benisti. Uh, and I, I, will, I will point out that the names, uh, how is it they use the same dragnet? The names have been uh, changed to protect the innocent, right? They, uh, the rabbis almost always uh, change the names to Ruben, Shimon Levi, uh, Rachel, Leah, right? These generic names. So you shouldn't know who the people are who are involved. Uh, every once in a while, they slip up and we get the actual names. So uh, Ruben has a store. I, 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 one more piece of background, sorry. Uh, there was no Walmart in the 17th century. You need stuff, you need particular products. You need to know who to go to. You need somebody who knows the uh, ins and outs of the merchants and uh, who knows what's coming in on which ship and how to get the particular thing that you need. Because without that, uh, you, you can't get it at things. You can only get it sort of generic things. But if you need specialized items, you need somebody who knows the stores and the, uh, and the merchandise. So in his store, Ruben, a Jewish guy, carried on a trade buying and selling cloth, clothes, silk apparel, other such things as merchants normally do. God privileged him with a visit from a certain official of the Sultan, a very great man who came in and did business with him two or three times. So an important government official comes to his store, amazing. From that point onward, the man was always friendly with him. He would regularly stop in when he was passing by to purchase anything he needed from Reuben for himself for his household. Ultimately, he became so accustomed to Reuven and to conducting business with him that the official got quite attached to him. Reuven became a fixture at his home, directing the comings and goings of everything there and overseeing his affairs. This is what is called a Saraf Bashi. He is the head of the household. Every important, pretty much every important Ottoman uh, governor and official and vizier had a Jewish Saraf Bashi uh, overseeing his household. Um, and we'll see what kinds of things it is that he does there. So he directs the comings and goings of everything there, overseeing his affairs. Everything he needed in the way of clothes, satin sheets, hemp, wares, anything that cost money would be bought through Ruben. He was allowed to carry on with no outsiders involved from the time he was appointed over the household more than 25 years ago. So this is a long-term relationship and a key to the halachic, to the legal issue, is that nobody is competing with him, uh, right? A competition uh, between businesses that are too close together or that are competing for the exact same business is called in halacha masig vul. So none of that is happening. He has an exclusive on this vizier. Now, during that entire time, no year passed during which the official was not indebted, indebted to Ruvain around 20,000 grush but he would allow him to pay it off in installments. And when the opportunity arose, he would be paid back generously. In other words, Ruvain on the side as part of his business is essentially a money lender. 
he's not getting his 20,000 grush back. He's getting 20,000 grush back with interest from this vizier. So it's a very good business he has. Okay. The years passed and this official was appointed a vizier in the court. So Ruven's uh, tide is going to rise together with his uh, friend. He had to purchase the entire necessary wardrobe for himself, clothes for his retinue and his young men, and there were many, and the accompanying weapons of silver, similar materials, all according to their traditions. Ruven supplied it all on credit from strings to, sh from strings to shoe buckles until the debt reached almost 30,000 groups. That's a lot of money. In addition to all this, he supplied him with everything they required, for he said to himself, perhaps God will be merciful and this year will rise to a high status and become one of the great men and the one who tends to uh, who tends a fig eats from its fruit. In other words, if I'm his guy, if I'm his supplier, he's going to do great, I'm going to do great. All right. But there is wrath gone out from the Lord. And this is very typical in the Sheilot Chuvot that they are made up largely of strings of pieces of pesukim uh, from the, the Tanakh and from the, uh, the, the rabbinic literature. Uh, so we'll see a lot of that. So, uh, so something bad is going to happen. God, God caused masters to become angry with their servants. That is a quotation from the Midrash. Uh, for some reason, the fury of the Sultan was kindled with four of his adjutants, or the viziers, who serve in the Sultan's gates. And suddenly the Sultan's decree was announced that they should be exiled to the island of Rhodes with no forewarning at all. Ruvain's vizier was among those affected by this decree, he exiled, exiled them immediately, and with that took everything they had. So the Sultan takes all this guy's goods and money, lands, along with three of his colleagues. They're just, they're down and out. He exiled them immediately, uh, took everything they had. Uh, they did not even have a chance to take anything with them except their own bodies. They dumped them into a boat, sent them away to Rhodes, a place where the Sultan's prisoners were held. If that language sounds familiar, that's the language that's used concerning Yosef, right? That he was put into the prison where the Paro's prisoners were held. That's the language. When Ruvain heard about his tra this tragic event, he was terribly saddened and upset because the debt owed to him by the vizier was more than 30,000 grush. At the same time, he himself owed money to many suppliers. In other words, he's buying and he's giving to the uh, vizier, and now he's got a bunch of debts of his own to all the people that he uh, bought stuff from. Uh, what can a lamb do among wolves? They would demand their due, and he had nothing with which to pay them. So on top of everything else, he left his loss up to God, cast his load upon the Lord, those are the, uh, from Sukim, and uh, prepared to add even more to the earlier losses for which he lamented. He took 50,000 ducats in a bag for expenses of the journey, and a few of the implements for the exile, a bed, cushions, tools, sweets, food for the road, and went off to the vizier and his retinue before the ship sailed. In other words, he could have cut his losses and just told his vizier, I'm really sorry, man, good luck to you. <laughs> Here's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or whatever, but he didn't do that. He, he, he doubled down. He brought the vizier everything that he needed for the journey and so on. He spoke good and comforting words to the heart of the vizier, so the officials sitting nearby were deeply astonished by Ruben's generosity and his eloquence. The vizier then began to sing Ruben's praises, declaring that he had found a faithful friend, one who had served him with love from the day that he met him. Ruben, in this 
the discussion looks very much like he's all about the business advantage, whereas the vizier seems like he's found a true friend. It's a little painful to read that, but um, if God would ever remember him benevolently, benevolently and return him to his position, raising up uh, to greatness again, he, the vizier, would repay Reuben according to what is proper and owed to him. They took leave of each other, the vizier going off on his voyage across the sea and Reuben back to his home to see what would happen to him. Uh, that is language, by the way, from Megillat um, Esther. Not much time passed before the Sultan's anger subsided. He decreed that the expelled viziers, including this one, should be returned to their former places. They arrived back in the capital city, broken and tossed about, dirt poor, without anything at all to support themselves, for the Sultan had looted everything they had. This, by the way, this is a very useful document for understanding Ottoman history as well as Jewish history. We're getting quite a picture of what this vizier's ups and downs look like. At this juncture, Ruvain again showed up to support the vizier, finding him the means, finding him the means to acquire the things he needed from a horse ride upon the servant to run before him so that he could return to the sultan's gates, the divan, uh, in the accustomed manner. In time, God made this vizier pleasing in the eyes of the sultan. They get God raised him up, and out of his affection for him, the sultan appointed him governor of Egypt. Governor of Egypt, that's the big prize in the Ottoman court. Egypt is the leading Arab uh, uh, state belonging to the Ottoman Empire. So being the governor of Egypt, that was a huge deal. Uh, and this Jew, uh, Ruvain, whatever his real name is, uh, he's carried along on the coattails. And now the vizier really loves him. Um, and uh, it's an extremely good and productive territory, right? At that point, Ruvain was deathly ill, his head and arms so desiccated that he could not make his way to the gates of the vizier for his illness had overtaken him. Nevertheless, the vizier did not violate his friendship or abuse his faith in him. The very day that the vizier departed from the sultan in his royal finery, something called the halat, which is the, the robe of uh, royalty or of uh, the, the uh, upper nobility, the moment he came home with his robes of honor upon him, he stripped them off and gave the clothes to one of his servants to bring the robes to Reuben. He told him that he was granting him the role of chief financier, uh, Seraph Basalik, right? I, these, uh, the, the, the things didn't come through in the copy, but um, so it, he was uh, granting him the robes by right. So he gets to wear this flat, this special robe. Uh, for the, uh, the Sarafash. Uh, in the morning, Reuben gathered his strength, weak as he was, came prostrated himself before the vizier. The vizier rejoiced greatly with him, then told Reuben and his brothers, prepare provisions for yourselves, because in three more days, we are leaving. Get yourselves together, get ready in haste. So he's got three days to move himself and his whole household to Egypt. Meanwhile, there was another Jew. Now, this is where the plot thickens. Keep your eye on the ball here. Meanwhile, there's another Jew, Shimon, who frequented the court of the head vizier on some matter. When he saw that this other vizier, Ruvain's vizier, uh, uh, had been granted rule over the foremost territory, being placed in control of the entire land of Egypt, he plotted in his heart to seize habitations not his own. That's quotation from Habakkuk. He requested that the head vizier command the other vizier, Ruvain's vizier, 
to make him, Shimon, the chief financier instead of Reuben. He wants to be the Sarabashi. The head vizier lost no time in doing so. So the head vizier likes Shimon. So he basically tells Reuven's vizier, uh, drop Reuven and Shimon's gonna be your new guy. Uh, writing him a directive that he should make Shimon the chief financier. This was a very bad thing in the vizier's view. Uh, so much that he got up and told the head vizier that he has a Jew who's overseen his household for many years and to whom he has already promised the office of chief financier. Despite all this, the head vizier told his attendant, command him concerning the office of chief financier, but this is what I want, okay? This is Masig Gvul. Shimon is pushing his way in, and despite everything that Ruven has done for this vizier all these years, Shimon is trying to push him out and take over as the Jewish Sarabashi. Um, so he did so dressing Shimon in the robes of the chief financier. The vizier, right, Ruven's vizier, along with all his servants and attendants, were terribly dismayed about how this terrible perfidy could have occurred. The vizier spoke to Ruven in secret and told him, don't take this to heart, stay true to me and your reward will be very great. That should be your reward will be very great. Now, when some of the eminent people of the land observed the exploitation maltreatment of Reuven, they intervened between Reuven and Shimon to fashion a compromise that would help them avoid harming each other. In this, they failed because Reuven was impelled not to bring the matter to a settlement and partnership. He said, how can I do such a terrible thing to take bread for which I struggled and fought from the months of my own, uh, from the mouths of my own babies and infants, my own children, and give it to one who did nothing to earn it. And though the mediators insisted that they would arrange a concession, uh, that would be very, a concession that would be very advantageous for Reuben, uh, he would not accept it and was completely uh, unreceptive. Okay. Shimon and his group, meanwhile, were lying in wait for this. If Reuben would not compromise with him, he had influence with the head vizier, as well as, listen, who else he has influence with, and think about what this means about the sultan's court. He has influence with the head vizier, and with the sultan's wife, and with the sultan's mother. So the sultan, who's the big man, controls the entire Ottoman Empire, is still influenced by his wife and his mother. And look who else. And he would arrange that Ruvain never go to Egypt and all. Furthermore, at this time, the Flemish ambassador was here, an important man beloved by all the officials whose requests would not be denied. This person too was helping Shimon and backing him with his support. Ruvain was in such fear of all this that when they were on the way to board the boat and he found himself alone with Shimon, and no mediators present, but two men swore to each other uh, to be partners in the chief financier's position uh, with the condition that Shimon would wear the robe of office in Cairo or Alexandria and Alexandria. And if not, he would be exempt from his oath. In other words, he uses influence uh, to take the position over alone. Uh, but even though Shimon would wear the robe, nevertheless, when it came to the sale of food, textiles, and clothing, he had no business with them, as Reuven said, because that all belongs to Reuven. In other words, the split would be Shimon would get all the glory and the public office and get to wear the cool robe and so on, and uh, Reuven would uh, be in the back, the back office doing the actual business, 
and making probably most of the money, you have to assume. Uh, when the ships prepared to leave the Constantinople harbor, by the way, by this time, it had been called Istanbul for uh, uh, 200 years, but the Jews never call it Istanbul. They always call it Kushto, Constantinople. I don't know why, but they never, they never change over as far as I can tell. Anyway, when the ships prepared to leave the Constantinople harbor, the vizier treated Shimon like a stranger as if nothing had ever occurred between them. I uh, spoke harshly with him once or twice, but to no effect, for he did not want him. When they reached Egypt, he immediately dressed Reuven in the robe of the chief financier rather than Shimon, and on any matter for any need, for better or for worse, he turned to Reuven and not to Shimon. All of these years, people, right, all his horses and all his men, right, his uh, people, his ministers, officers and attendants acted as he did, in other words, they treated Reuven as if he was the man and Shimon was not in the picture. When Shimon saw that his resolution was not being followed and 10 days uh, or so had passed without his gaining any benefit at all, he said to Reuven, please, I've come, but the vizier has not seen fit to attach me to any post, whether small or great. Let's make a covenant between you and me that you will compromise and give me something and I will leave you alone so all will be well with you. With this, some reliable and understanding men were brought in to negotiate between them, and they agreed that Reuven would give Shimon 3,500 grush. He would also pay him on behalf of the vizier, who owed him 4,000 for a total of 7,500, and Shimon would go away. He would go on his way. Reuven did this. He handed him the 7,500 grush, and they wrote up a comprehensive settlement comprising a clear and absolute acquittal of each one's claims on the other. It conformed to all the laws and statutes with due prerogative and authority of the scribe. Shimon left there and traveled to the land of Israel uh, where he lived. And then he returned to Constantinople. Reuven remained in Egypt, uh, conducting business on behalf of the vizier. After two years had passed, the viziers transferred from his post uh, in Egypt uh, and removed from his office. He set out on his journey by way of land. Reuven was already weak from the difficulty of travel, went on ship by sea, and they all arrived back in Constantinople. Now watch what happens next, and with this we'll kind of wind up the story. Now when Reuven arrived here in Constantinople, Shimon clapped him with a lawsuit, claiming that he had been his complete, that he, Shimon had been his complete partner, and wanting Reuven to divide all his profit with him for he too had worn the robe of the chief financier when he was here. And if he had agreed to a compromise in Egypt, it was only because he was forced to do it. He claimed as if Reuven hadn't been forced to deal with Shimon to begin with. He claimed to have a deposition to annul their settlement. Reuven claims that Shimon had threatened his life and had encroached on his rightful boundaries, Hesed et Zulo, uh, right? Uh, grabbing a position that was not his by coming to the gates of the vizier. For 30 years, Reuven had earned and maintained it. How many expenses and losses had he undergone in his service? How many gratuities had he paid through uh, throughout as part of his service to the court of the vizier? This is well known. Then the Shimon shows up with high-handed methods using force to take what was Reuven, and so on. So I'll, I'll spare you the rest of the story, but uh, Right, the long and short of it is that Chacham Ben Veniski sides very strongly with Reuven and says that Shimon was out of line and shouldn't have done this. So, 
this is our first example of uh, a type of thing that can come up in the She'elah Tshuva. This is not dealing with ordinary people. This is dealing with people at the very high end of the Jewish community and at the very high end of the Ottoman government. Uh, so we learned here about uh, Jews serving as Sarabashi for uh, high-level uh, governors and Ottoman households. Uh, we learned that within the Jewish community, there was competition, sometimes really cutthroat competition for these Saraf Bashi positions, these sort of head of household positions for these Ottoman uh, governors and officials. And uh, we learned about a close and seemingly genuine friendship between uh, a Jew and, uh, and a, a leading Ottoman official. And uh, we got some sense of uh, how business was conducted uh, in the Ottoman Empire in the 17th century. So uh, let me pause here and uh, uh, ask if anybody has any questions about this document. Uh, I cannot see the chat. So if there's anything in the chat, um, you have to tell me what it is. No questions? Somebody yes, had a question? Your hand up, no. Yeah, you got to unmute and tell me uh, what's <laughs> on your mind. Yourself, is that thumbs up or hands up? No, thumbs up. All good. Okay. <laughs> All right. So should we move to the next document? I think so. Okay. Uh, let me see, I'm, I'm burning up my time very quickly. Uh, okay, so that was a document from the 17th century from the heart of the Ottoman Empire in Constantinople and uh, relating to Egypt also. This second document is from 100 years later, from the 18th century, and it is uh, from uh, Morocco. And uh, the Chacham, who is answering this question, uh, Chacham Yaakov Ibn Sur, is a major figure uh, in 18th century Morocco, one of the great uh, rabbinic figures in the history of Moroccan Jewry. Uh, fascinating personally, as well as uh, the things that come up in his She'ilot Tshuvot. I uh, highly recommend uh, learning whatever you can about him if you're interested in Moroccan history. And um, we'll see in this uh, She'ila that he sometimes uh, uh, puts his own comments into the She'ila as you go along. So, or it, it might be an editor, but it seems to me that it's probably Chacham Yaakov Ibn Sur uh, inserting himself. So this case is a little complicated. So uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll try and uh, keep it as clear as possible. And uh, things move back and forth between three cities in Morocco, between Tangier in Morocco and North Africa, between Tangier, uh, Fez, and Tetouan. So uh, try to sort of keep your eye on, on how the, the, the action is moving around. So uh, he starts out, and clearly this is the voice of Chacham Ibn Sur that we're hearing. It has been a long, sorrowful time that Mr. Solomon HaKohen, Shlomo HaKohen of Tangier, may God protect him, has been living here with us in Fez. 
So you have Shlomo HaKohen, Solomon HaKohen from Tangier, who moved to Fez and has been very depressed or things have been bad for him, upset, angry, and bitter. We did not know what had befallen him until the day came that we investigated inquiring into the matter and heard from others that uh, something improper had been done to him. The cause was certain testimony that he'd given in Tangiers. So in front of a rabbinic court, a Beit Din, this uh, Shlomo HaKohen had given certain testimony back in Tangier, and it had come back to bite him uh, in the uh, posterior, if I'm allowed to say that. Uh, okay, when the matter was taken up in Tetuan, the, uh, the communal heads of Tetuan, may God protect it, arose and demanded that he pay back the losses certain people sustained at the hands of the Gentiles because they claimed that his testimony had caused their losses. So let's get the picture. Here's this guy, Shlomo Kohen of Tangier. He's living in Fez, uh, but he's being attacked by uh, certain people from Tetuan who say that certain testimony that this Shlomo Kohen had given before a Beit Din, before a rabbinic court, had caused people losses and that they think that he owes them money, okay? He is now like a refugee for he fears that if he would return to his home in Tangier, they would give him no respite until he pays. We see him walking around in a melancholy, depressed, tearful state, sighing all the time. We therefore sent for him and asked that he present the facts of the matter to us as they had occurred. He produced for us a copy of the testimony he had given concerning a man by the name of Solomon Gerson, Shlomo Gershon, describing how Gershon had been delighted and self-satisfied to relate the affairs he had carried on with several women, some widows, some currently married. He had done with them as he pleased. So here is where we start to get the picture. Our guy, Shlomo Kohen, uh, is friends with this uh, Shlomo Gershon. And Shlomo Gershon comes around and he's bragging about all these women he slept with. Uh, some of them are widows, some of them are currently married. That is what is called an Isur de Oraita. That is forbidden according to Torah law. It comes with a death penalty, although I don't think they were in a position to apply the death penalty in Morocco at this time, but this is a very severe sin that this man has, has committed. And he's told his friend Shlomo HaKohen, the guy that we're talking about, all about all his conquests. Okay, so everybody got the picture, I hope, right? That's the story. Meanwhile, rumors have been circulating there about some man and woman having an affair. In other words, the people, the rabbis, people knew that something was going on between some man and some woman that was inappropriate, uh, but they didn't know the details. It was confirmed, um, though they, uh, they had tried to cover it up. Uh, when they saw this, the community, along with the chacham of the city, gathered in the synagogue, may God increase its greatness, on a Shabbat to rebuke and safeguard the moral fences of Israel. The Chacham preached about this matter. They decreed that any Jew who knew, now check this out, 
They decreed that any Jew who knew about someone's promiscuous acts but did not come forward to report them is himself a concealed sinner. So if you know something about this, uh, these affairs that are going on and you don't come forward, you, you are liable too. Okay, for this reason, the aforementioned Mr. Uh, Solomon Kohen appeared and testified what he had heard concerning the aforementioned Shlomo Gershon. So now we're getting the picture. He, he, uh, he hears the, the Rav, the, the, the Chacham of the community say, anybody who knows about these illicit affairs, these inappropriate affairs going on, you must step forward or you're going to be guilty too. So he, he knows about it. It's his own friend, but he feels bad uh, that he has to do it. But he, he steps forward and he gives testimony uh, about his friend, Shlomo Gershon. After the presentation of the testimony, it stated that uh, Mr. Shlomo Gershon, wait one second, let me make sure I'm in the right place. Uh, sorry. Uh, after Okay, after the presentation of the testimony, it stated that the said Mr. Shlomo Gershon swore, I think you got to shrink it a little bit more, so we can see the, the right edge, make it a, a little bit smaller, a little smaller, yeah, there we go, okay. After the presentation of the testimony, Mr. Shlomo Kohen swore upon an object, the Torah scroll, confirmed on 19 Tammuz of the year 1744 in the name of God, may he be blessed, in the name of all those who swear by his great and awesome name and truth, that everything to which he had testified was absolute fact. It is what the aforementioned Shlomo uh, Gershon had told him from time to time, to which Kohen had added nothing. He also had no dislike of Shlomo Ko uh, Gershon, quite the opposite, he had been a friend of his. As long as he had seen no charge, to report transgressors, he had been silent. In other words, until the rabbi said, you must come forward and report anything you know, he just left it alone. Uh, but when he saw that the Holy Congregation had undertaken to regulate conduct and to decree that anyone who knew something must come and, next page, testify, he came and testified before the Chacham. Among the things to which he swore was that the, all the details he had mentioned his testimony were not divulged to him by Shlomo Kohen at one time, uh, Gershom at one time, but from time to time, various occasions. And each instance, he would recount, recount one or two details. So apparently Gershom Shalom is the real Casanova, and he's always having affairs with, with various women. And every once in a while, he goes and tells his friend some of the details. Furthermore, Gershom, uh, Gershom did not speak to him of all these matters of drunkenness, but in a state of full awareness. This is what was written, the document that he showed us. So uh, Shlomo Kohen has a copy of this court document about this testimony he gave. Another witness to this was found here in Fez by the name of Meir Ben Ramoch, who had been in Tangier at that time. And uh, he said that uh, Shlomo HaKohen did exactly what he claimed. And uh, he made that testimony before the Chacham of the community there. His name was Chacham uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hadida. Uh, and the Chacham went to in investigate this, right, these, these uh, rumors. 
and inquire into the manner of those women in order to rebuke them and separate them from sin. Uh, and uh, one of the women who heard the Chacham speaking about this matter went and told the husband of one of the suspected women. In other words, okay, the, the Chacham of the community gets up in front of this uh, Chacham Hadida, gets up in front of the community and he says, anybody knows anything about any affairs going on, better come forward and so on. And uh, one of the women who is in the Asnoga in the synagogue at the time uh, goes and she knows that one of her friends has been guilty of sleeping with this guy, right? And she goes in and she, and she tells her friend, uh, look out, right? They're, they're on the warpath, they're looking for you. Um, so actually uh, the, the, the woman who had heard the Chacham went and told the husband, of one of the suspected women. This man, the husband of the suspected woman, now went to the governor. Now look at how this happens because this happens all the time uh, in the Ottoman Empire among the Western Sephardim all the time is that somebody goes and gets the government involved. So there is a relationship between the Beit Din, the Jewish court and uh, the court of the Qadi, right? The Muslim uh, judge and uh, relationships with the uh, government. Now, we already have a sense from the previous document that sometimes Jews were pretty important to the nobility and to the government in the Ottoman Empire. So they keep their eye on what's going on in the Jewish community. So uh, this, this man, the husband of the suspected woman, goes to the governor and, told, and tells him that uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Kohen, who is another member of the Beit Din, perhaps, uh, and Rabbi Yehuda Hadida had slandered his wife. You hear how he does this? He goes and he tells the governor that the rabbis slandered his wife. The governor arrested them, was preparing to punish them, forcing Rabbi Yehuda Hadida to tell the governor, I said nothing on my own, rather a single witness, Mr. Shlomo Kohen, told me such and such. Now, the Torah says that uh, in, a, in a capital case, at least, you need two witnesses, right? You need two or three witnesses. So the rabbi is sort of throwing our friend uh, Shlomo Kohen under the bus here, the 18th century bus, whatever it is, right? Throwing him under their wagon. Because uh, when the government, when the governor has uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hadida in front of him, Hadida says, oh, I, I wasn't the one, I didn't say anything. It was this Shlomo Kohen who came and gave, they gave this testimony alone. In other words, there was no corroborating witness. Um, the governor then arrested Shlomo Kohen to have him, to have him testify. At the beginning, he denied it all, but the heads of the holy community saw that the two aforementioned Chachamim, uh, Kohen and Hadida were in distress because the government, the governor was preparing to punish them. It was possible that the cup of torture would pass on to Mr. Shlomo Kohen as well. In other words, the governor, he doesn't care. He is going to get to the bottom of it no matter how many people he has to torture and imprison. That's the way governors worked in the Ottoman Empire and in, uh, and, and in uh, Morocco, okay? Um, 
So they came to Mr. Shlomo Kohen and said to him, why do you deny it? Tell the truth for its own sake. So he said, I fear that the suspects will forfeit money at the hands of the governor. In other words, the, the people who committed adultery are going to get arrested. They're going to have to pay fines, right? And I'll be charged for their loss. That's what he's afraid of. And as it turns out, for excellent reason, uh, whether or not the law demands it. I'm also afraid the governor will punish me with physical torture. The heads of the community told him, don't worry, don't be upset, tell the truth, save those arrested, that is the two rabbis, we will intercede to save you from physical distress as well as monetary distress. If you think that uh, liars are a, a, a phenomenon of the 20th and 21st century, well, here you go. They uh, assure the Shlomo HaKohen, they'll take all the responsibility on their shoulders, the heads of the community, right? Uh, anything you lose is entirely our responsibility, whether it's lost the governor, the suspected women, uh, or any suit in rabbinic court that arises. And with that, he told, right, so this is the Shlomo HaKohen has all these assurances, and he goes ahead and tells the governor what he knows about these adulterous affairs going on in the community. So that's what Mayor Ben Romach, Ramoch, uh, told uh, the Beit Din in Fez. That's what he told Rabbi Yaakov ibn Tzur. So Shlomo Kohen related to us weeping bitter tears. He summarized the whole matter for the governor. The governor then arose, arrested Shlomo Gershon, took what he wanted from him in fines. He also took a fine from Jacob Israel. I'm not sure who that is, but I think that's one of the rabbis or the community leader based on the same testimony, took what he wanted from the accused women as the governors are wont to do. In other words, uh, a, uh, a Moroccan governor, an Ottoman governor saw every legal case as an opportunity to make money. Uh, and so basically his approach is to just take fines from everybody involved. Um, the matter persisted onward. Tuchachamin mentioned Kohen and Hadida traveled to Tetuan. May God preserve them. That's the Holy Congregation of Tetuan stood against them and sullied their honor, tormenting them by asking, why did you do this? They sent to Tangier to force Shlomo Kohen to come before them in Tetuan, which he did. So you see the rabbis in, uh, in Tetuan uh, take the side of uh, the, the families of, the, um, of the, the women who were involved in all this, rather than siding with their colleagues, the rabbis of Tangier. Uh, you get the sense here that as we're deep into the 18th century, something is a little rotten in the rabbinate. The rabbinate is, does not maintain the integrity and the, uh, the camaraderie that we expect it to. They don't circle the wagons and make sure that they are doing their responsibility as rabbis. Something has gone wrong here. Something has gone off the tracks and the rabbis in Tetuan uh, are against their colleagues in, in uh, Fez, and they are going to turn against uh, Shlomo HaKohen. Uh, so they say to the, to the Fez rabbis, why did you do this? They sent to Tangier to force Shlomo HaKohen to come before them in Tetuan, which he did. The heads of the holy community were very bad to him because of his testimony he had given. They demanded that he repay everything lost by those accused. In other words, everything that the, the uh, 
communal leaders back in Tangier had promised they would not let happen to him, that's exactly what happened to him. All the losses are blamed on him, and the Tetuan Hachamim blamed everything on him and on the rabbis who supported him. Um, afterwards, they appeared before a rabbinic court, which assented, charged him with a repayment for the reason. Now listen why they say he is responsible for all this. Because he was a sole witness, that makes him a motzi shemra. He is a slanderer. In other words, he was told, right, he heard the, the sermon of the Chacham and uh, Hadida, and he came forward with what he knew. Uh, and um, now he is accused of coming forward as a sole witness, as if in every case where you need two witnesses, each witness is responsible to make sure there is another witness with him. That's not, that was never the way it worked, right? You came forward and you testified about what you knew. If there were two witnesses, the guy, you know, whoever was accused went down. If there's only one witness, well, that's too bad, nothing happens. But no, they are saying, because you came alone, you are motzi shemra. That is lashon hara, motzi shemra. You are guilty, right? And they blame it all on him. So again, I'll, I'll cut it short here. Um, and uh, you can sort of read the rest of the document yourselves. Um, maybe you'll, uh, maybe the Chabura will send it out. So if people want to read these, uh, you can read them. But uh, think about how bizarre this case is. Here is this guy, he's sitting in the, in the synagogue. He hears the Chacham say, anybody who knows about this immorality going on in the community, step forward or if you don't, you are as guilty as they are. So he steps forward, he tells them what he knows, and, and everything ends up coming down on his head. And uh, part of the reason is because one of the husbands, uh, you would think that the husband would be angry at his wife, but he's not, he's angry at the chacham. Uh, the husband went to the governor. So this is again, something we see all the time. Uh, in, in these uh, communities is that uh, when the, the Jews have a lot of autonomy, but there is a limit. And uh, any time that somebody feels that they have been wronged by the Beit Din uh, or they want a different outcome, they can always go to the second, well, there's no secular court exactly. They could go uh, to the, the court of the Qadi, of the Muslim a judge, or they can go to the government and uh, complain. And this is the type of thing that happens all the time. It, it is very common in the Shevot to Chuvot to see that the governor gets involved and basically seizes it an opportunity to just take money from all sides and then kick the case out. Um, so, uh, so this, I think, shows us something about the, the kind of uh, corruption in the community uh, we're not seeing all sides here. We're never really seeing all the sides, but it seems it looks very bad for the Tetuan Beit Din and uh, what they're doing. The idea of accusing a man who came forward to give testimony about immorality, accusing him of being motzi shemra, of, of slander, is just uh, bizarre and, and really unworthy uh, of, uh, of the rabbis. But that's what happens. Okay, I'll pause again and see if anybody has any uh, questions or comments about that.
Teshuvah. Um, Not so much. Okay, I know I'm I'm already at my hours. I'd like to ask a question. I'll I'll try and do uh, maybe five minutes or, or ten minutes. Thank you very much, Professor. Uh, I've got a question, but I know Robert's got one too. So, Robert, do you want to go ahead? Uh, okay. Yes. But so, in these two votes, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is not the case, but it, on face value, it seems we're believing the plaintiff verbatim. You know, has the 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 author of the tshuva done due diligence? Because this story could be completely made up. You know, he he may well have brought Motsi Shem against these women. He may not have heard this from his friend. You know, he may have a vendetta against the husbands. I mean, how do we know your, your, your conclusions are based on the assumption that, that this story is is a true story? Um, you know, are we relying on the author, the tuba, to have suitable due diligence? Because um, it's only one person's word against another. Right. So the first thing that we know is that uh, Chacham Ibn Sur found another person in Fez who knew the story, who knew what had happened and had been in Fez at the time. And they interviewed him, uh, right? That was what we, what we saw of this uh, Ibn Ramoch, uh, that they, he, he found a corroborating witness. And um, so I think that it is fair uh, that um, uh, to, to assume that he did due diligence. However, you are still correct that that doesn't mean that everything happened the way that we've just uh, seen it described. The corroborating witness suggests that it's it's pretty close to that, but um, we, we never really know. Uh, it's enough for me uh, to assume that Chacham Ibn Tsur, who again is, is really a great figure, uh, has has found out enough to, to be reliable on the on the outlines of the case. But we never really know. And um, I have a, a colleague at University of um, Maryland, um, Bernie Cooperman, who always uh, attacks me on this. He says, the whole thing is a business. You pay the rabbi to give you the result that you want. It's, uh, it's never really uh, but it seems it's never really honest and, and, and done in good faith and so on. Uh, I don't think he's right. I think that we, we know enough to, uh, to know that it's not a sham. But uh, I, I think that you are correct that we have to be suspicious. And uh, even in a case like this where a, a corroborating witness has been found, never really know. Let me see. Uh, uh, right. So it's Saraf. Right with the uh, with the accent under the S. Um, that was a I, question. I, I had a question okay. as well. And what what is the what is the other question? The question I had was you mentioned the Muslim courts, and I was keen to find out if we have instances where the the Bate Din would go and collaborate with the Muslim uh, court of law for one reason or another. Do yes, you see we those do. kinds of happen collaboration? all the time? Really, happen all the time. Uh, especially regarding uh, documents of partnership and uh, business transactions. They work together. There's not a huge difference. And uh, sometimes people talk about the law of the merchants, uh, which was a sort of general law that merchants from all 
uh, backgrounds would, uh, would were uh, at least allegedly would follow, and that the the Beit Din and the Kadi uh, cooperate all the time, and sometimes also uh, general merchant uh, courts, or uh, uh, often it was um, more of a uh, what do you call it? Um, where they, they sort of sit down with the negotiator and, and, and work things out. That was that was very common. Uh, in my little book, uh, which uh, this material is taken from, um, I have a, a super interesting case where uh, some Jews use the difference between Jewish and Muslim law of divorce. Uh, in Muslim law, divorce is extremely easy. Um, and uh, so they, they uh, would, if, if there was a husband who would not give a get to his wife, uh, and the rabbis considered that the, the husband was really terrible and needed to give her a get, they would bring them before the Muslim court. Uh, they would do this sort of instant divorce, right? This super quick, like you just say a couple of lines and you're divorced in Muslim law. And then they go back to the husband and they say, look, pal, you know, you're already divorced according to the law of the land. You might as well just go ahead and give her a get. Here, we'll give you some money. Just, you know. So, so they used, they actually used the Muslim court in that way. Uh, so there were all kinds of relationships between the Jewish courts and the Muslim courts, but that was a, that was a constant. I see something else. Oh, thank you for putting the, the, uh, the link there. I, that was very nice. Okay. So, Thank you. Um, and uh, Vedat, is you okay with one more question, Professor? Is that okay? Say it again. Are you okay for another question? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Is that okay? Vedat, go ahead. It's our Turkish uh, Khabarah member. <laughs> Vedat, go ahead. just wanted to ask about uh, the question you answered before, uh, whether the word Saraf should be written with S-A-R-R-A-F or S with an accent E-R-E-F. Because in the second case, in like... In modern Turkish, at least, it would mean uh, the head of honor, whereas the first one would mean something like uh, uh, traders had or like the, the, the head of the traders. So that, that's why I asked the question, because it seems interesting for it to be written with uh, the accents, at least if the word is Ottoman Turkish, which I assume it is. Yeah. So, just so the, my uh, colleague at Ohio State, Carter Finley, who's a, a pretty well-known Ottomanist, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, told me that that is the correct spelling with the, with the accent under the, uh, the S, um, that that's what it's talking about. And whether it's used the same way in Ottoman Turkish as it is in modern yeah, Turkish, I, I don't really like, know. I think you probably tell me. Like Turkish, Arabic, and Farsi would mean something like, like somebody who trades with gold and silver. Okay. So that's just what I wanted to... Like, yeah, so uh, this, I think this point. is the broader, I think this is the broader definition. Okay, uh, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the insight. Okay. Brilliant. Professor? We'll go to our uh, last document. I'll try and go through it quickly. Uh, I, I won't go too far in this document because it basically is all saying one thing and it's saying it in a long and a drawn out fashion. So I'll try and, and just... Uh, uh, look at this quickly. So now we're in the 19th century. We're in the middle of the 19th century. And uh, in Europe, the, reforma- the, uh, the, the, the Jewish reform movement and Haskalah are in, in full swing all over the place. 
And I will tell you what I think is going on here. I cannot prove this, but I think is what, what is going on. So this is our, our third Chacham that we're dealing with uh, is Chacham Chaim Palaji, who's a very famous figure. It's uh, Palachi and Palaji are the same uh, family name, uh, originally Palacios. Um, so uh, uh, it's a, a famous family, a lot of interesting members, uh, some of whom were pirates or uh, privateers, I don't know, all kinds of interesting people. But he is a very well-known figure, very highly respected uh, Chacham uh, in uh, the city of Izmir. So a question is asked to him from Paris, from Paris, where people want to make changes in the synagogue service. And when we see what the changes are, it becomes very clear that they are heading in a reform direction, that they have been influenced by the German reform movement and that they, are, they want to go that direction by changing the service, by uh, let's say shortening the service, uh, removing some passages that some people find offensive or whatever, they're too particularistic. And uh, so they ask this Ottoman Chacham uh, Palaji. Now, I asked myself when I came across this, why in the world would the, uh, the rabbis or the community leaders of Paris be asking a rabbi in uh, sort of the third city of the Ottoman Empire, uh, right? So you have Constantinople, you have Saloniki, and then uh, Izmir is, is kind of the, the third city. So wh why? Why would they be going to him? Uh, Paris has, uh, and, and France in general, has very big Talmidei Chachamim, all kinds of rabbis and important things. Why? Why are they going to this guy? So my theory is this, and this is just a theory. They thought that this guy, it's like, it's like uh, I'm here in, uh, in, in uh, Ohio, or let's say I'm in uh, Chicago or New York, and uh, I want to ask a question to somebody that I'm pretty sure doesn't know anything about the situation and is going to be give kind of a, uh, naive answer, right? So I'm, I'm going to find the rabbi in um, Mississippi, let's say, right? Uh, or, you know, some, I don't know how it would look in the UK there. Uh, you know, you go to, um, um, I don't know, um, Bristol or something. <laughs> That's not even a good example. I don't know, some, some tiny place, you know, Maidstone, I don't know, uh, to, to ask the person there because you're so sure that they're not really going to understand the issues that they're gonna give some kind of naive answer. But I think that's what happened here uh, because I can't think of any other reason that they would ask him. But if that was what happened, if that's what they thought they were gonna get, boy, oh boy, were they mistaken. So uh, it seems to me that the, the framers of the question are the people who are in favor of these reforms and they got it back in the face. So uh, let's just see quickly. I was asked to respond to a question for the great men, those who fear God and care for his name, the great city, they are mighty men, kings and princes, blah, 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 the city of Paris, may God preserve it. They asked the law uh, uh, concerning a new group that has appeared who cast doubt on current practices, wish to change the order of Genesis. That's a, that's a certain phrasing, that's a, a rhetorical phrasing, uh, in other words, Genesis, by Genesis, he means the way things have been done in the past. The proper traditions and traditions of the elders to reduce the order 
uh, of the liturgical poems and psalms, which are customary to read in the prayer services. In other words, the Pesuke di Zimra and the, the various uh, Piutim, which are part of the service. And additional voices appeared wishing to bring musicians into the house of God to per perform on Sabbaths and holy days, on Shabbat and Yamim Tovim, and are inappropriate. So already, as he's phrasing the question, he's already telling you what his answer is going to be, right? That they're trying to introduce music. This music is performed by non-Jews. This is something our ancestors never saw. Uh, for to do this, to change their traditions, to add and subtract was evil and bitter in their eyes. In other words, our ancestors never did that type of thing. It is an insult to the holy men who are now in the earth but are great because they are still spiritually alive. Among them are kings, right? And he's referring to great rabbis. And we are discussing a change from the opinions of the holy ones, our ancestors and teachers of previous generations of blessed memory, as well as the elderly still alive. In other words, the, the elders, the great rabbis and so on. It's rather an obligation incumbent on every member of the people of Israel from old to young to hold fast to the actions of our ancestors and not change practices that are very ancient and have existed for so many years. These were great people, the Urim and Tumim. Now, if you remember anything from any Jewish history classes you ever had that uh, concerned um, Ashkenazim, I know nobody's really interested in Ashkenazim, but you know, some places they teach something about them. You know that from this period, the reform was strongly, strongly opposed by uh, the, the rabbis of Ashkenaz, and especially uh, a person named the Khatam Sofer in, um, in Hungary, uh, which for reference had been an Ottoman province up until shortly before the period we're talking about. Anyway, the Khatam Sofer is famous for saying, Khadash Asur Min HaTorah, that is, anything new is forbidden, and uh, it's really a reference to new grain. But uh, he used it to, to make this kind of a general argument that anything new uh, is forbidden. Uh, not, th that might not have been a, a principle in, in the past, but in the face of the reform movement and Haskalah, that was his way of approaching it. No change, nothing ever changes, everything stays exactly the same. So you can see that Chacham Palaji is going the same direction. So he says, the French leaders begged me with pleading language with their pens in their letter to me that I should hurry and rush to send them a detailed response addressing the issues, for they fear that even greater breach may occur uh, if there's a delay in the words of the earlier and later rabbis. The new group will break through the fence and change all kinds of traditions. In other words, they're going to start with this, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. That is what led the questioners to come to me with pleading and requests according to the law. Should they prevent these innovations as they are occurring all over the world? Should they continue to practice and follow their ways as they have been since ancient times with no breach? Or perhaps is it appropriate to adopt innovations and their additions and subtractions from earlier practice would have the support of the rabbis? Perhaps the law allows new practices that were never known before. Um, you can see which way this is headed, obviously, from just the wording of the question, which was probably edited, edited by Chacham Palaji. The long and short of it is that he comes down on them like a ton of bricks. And he says, do not change anything. It's there for a reason. And the Chachamim always uh, said to do it this way. 
and nothing uh, that they are trying to innovate is appropriate and keep doing things the way they've always been done. So I won't go through the teshuvah, but that's that's the uh, that's the gist of what he has to say about this. So uh, yeah, I'm really sorry I went over my time and I apologize, but uh, you asked me to finish all three of the documents. I can't quite believe that I managed that, but um, we at least got the sense uh, of how things looked in the 17th century uh, with this Sarabashi. We uh, saw in the 18th century in Morocco, uh, how at least according to the documents that we have, assuming that we could rely on them, uh, how uh, the, um, the, the integrity of the communities and the, and the Fahamim seemed to be uh, teetering, especially when the governor became involved in the story. And now we're looking at the 19th century and we're seeing that one of the leading Sephardi rabbis of the time uh, is asked about innovations of the reform movement going on in Paris. Now I'd say Paris probably had both uh, uh, Ashkenazim and Sephardim. There had been a Sephardi community in France uh, since the 16th century in the south of France. And uh, there's a, a lot to say about them, which I won't tell you now, but uh, it is distinctly possible that these people are all together in Paris and they are pushing for reforms. And you see that the Ottoman Sephardi rabbi, uh, Chacham Palaji, is just dead set against it. He knows exactly what they're trying to pull off and he will not have any of it. So that's a little taste of uh, types of things that you can find in the, uh, in the responsa. Uh, it's kind of interesting because it's a legal literature. You expect it to be dry and very boring and sometimes it is, but there are uh, amazing stories and, and uh, information to be found there. Thank you so, so much, Professor. We should apologize for taking so much of your time because for us, it was an enjoyment to be able to uh, extend the class. Um, fascinating to see just at the top of that teshuvah before the response of Chaim Hakam Falaji. Uh, it, it, it is said that he was wondering why they're reaching out to him when they have such good local rabbis. Right. So that is, uh, it reminds me of the controversy in Languedoc when... Uh, you know, uh, the Hachamim of Provence were wondering why... Abamari had gone to Catalonia when the issue was local there in Provence. So uh, mm. that was very interesting. I've, I've actually posted the link for everyone listening to the chat, uh, two links. One is for one of Professor Goldish's books on Sephardi Teshubot. It's, it's an Amazon link, so please do um, get that if you can. And the second link is a link to the source sheet so you can read Hakan Palaji's response. Um, Professor, I really, really, really appreciate it. We all appreciate it. I'm looking forward to having you again, please God. And I look forward to that. And hopefully in person in London. So um, <laughs> thank, you. Uh, thank you. And um, thanks everybody for watching. Thanks everybody for listening wherever you are in the world. And Kol Tov, thank you so much. Thank you all.